0: Turning to Haggai chapter 1, where we'll be looking at some verses that I'm pretty sure aren't on our Meditate and Memorize list this year. But if you're unfamiliar with Haggai, we began looking at Haggai. um, It's what I am preaching through as I uh, pitch relief every few weeks for Matt. Um, in the series that he is going through in Luke. So the last time we were there was just before the holidays. Um, Haggai is a very brief book at the, almost the very end of the Old Testament. So if you go to Matthew, you can just go back to the left a few pages. But uh, don't go too quickly because Haggai is only two chapters. It's 38 verses, and so it's easy to flip right past. The events that are narrated in the book of Haggai cover a period of only four months at the end of the year 520 B.C. It was not a remarkable year in terms of the secular history at the time, but it was a significant moment in the history of God's people. Sixteen years earlier, the new Persian king Cyrus Ordered the temple in Jerusalem to be rebuilt. This was a huge turning point for Israel, for God's chosen people, because really the nation had been decimated by centuries of godless leadership and idolatry. They've been conquered and scattered by other nations, the Assyrians. And the Babylonians, for the last 70 years, and now the Persians have come in and conquered the Babylonians, and they have some new policies. And one that Cyrus set up was that there was a desire from, for him to have all the gods happy with him. So where Babylon sought to restrict and make everyone like them, Persia was a bit more free with their religious tolerance and they encouraged these temples to be rebuilt, including the temple in Jerusalem, so that he could get the favor from all the gods. But it's what God sovereignly used in order to have his temple rebuilt and his people relocated back to Jerusalem, the city of promise. So when the call to rebuild the temple was issued 50,000 returned from exile to assist with the project. But after running into opposition from those uh, that had since occupied the land while they were taken captive um, into Babylon they began to Flag. They began to slow down. They began to give up the work. They were once enthusiastic to begin and they began to turn complacent. The project went untouched for years. So God sent Haggai to reinvigorate God's people living in Jerusalem to engage their hearts once again in the work of God. So we're going to begin reading where we read last time the first two verses and then continue through verse 11 of chapter 1. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet, Is it a time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Now, therefore, says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider Your ways. Go up to the hills and bring wood and build the house that I may take pleasure in it and that I may be glorified, says the Lord. You looked for much. And behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Declares the Lord of Hosts. Because of my house that lies in ruins, while each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heavens above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce, and I have called for a drought on the land and the hills, on the grain. The new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast and on all their labors. It's clear that Haggai has studied the prophet's guide on how to win friends and influence people. How does a passage like this hit you? Anybody read ahead this week, knowing that we'd be back in Haggai and just exclaim in excitement, I can't wait for Sunday morning. In typical prophetic fashion, Haggai doesn't pull any punches. His goal is change, repentance, action that has been lacking for the last 15 plus years. So he's not shy about hitting people where they live, literally. His words are direct and pointed. But he's not an unhinged, wild-eyed prophet without careful thought. And he wants his hearer's response to also be born from careful thought. As he calls them to consider your ways and build what matters most. The first thing we're going to look at this morning is his call for Israel to consider your ways. It's hard to miss this call in Haggai's message, not just because he repeats it, but because Haggai isn't bringing helpful tips or life hacks, but a direct imperative. Consider your ways. This comes to his hearers as a command. Stop what you're doing. Pay attention And think about this. The people's priorities are out of whack, so he confronts them with the call to consider what they have been doing and what their actions have produced. Their actions haven't produced the temple, the very one that they came to rebuild. And their actions haven't resulted in their satisfaction or fulfillment, And so God directs Haggai to help them see the connection. Consider this, he says, let it sink in. This isn't just a general think-before-you-act exhortation. It's specific. He calls them to reflect on the incongruity between the state of their rebuilt homes and the ruined state God's house lay in. Now, this word, paneled houses, there's a range of meaning that can be included in this term from paneling that makes up the roof Describe more elaborate finish, like a wainscoting. At minimum, they have completed their homes as they've returned and rebuilt. And they've taken care of their essential needs, and so they're being urged to get back to building the temple. That would be, at minimum, what Haggai is calling them to. But since his critique also highlights how they've not found satisfaction in various things like food and drink and clothes and security through their income, I'm guessing that a similar unfulfilling preoccupation and busying themselves with their homes is what the prophet was after here. No one was showing appropriate concern for the temple. Their focus was on tricking out their cribs while God's house remained a pile of rocks. Consider your ways. But it wasn't just the disparity between the condition of their homes and the temple that Haggai compels them to contemplate. Sandwiched between the two identical calls to consider their ways is a list of how's that working out for you items. What fruit is your preoccupation with your personal Comfort and satisfaction producing, he asks them. You've sown a lot, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you're still hungry. You drink, but it doesn't satisfy. You've got new clothes, but they aren't keeping you warm, literally or figuratively. You earn money, But your wallet is leaky. These items. Home, food, clothes, income. These aren't bad things. They're not evil. They're even good and necessary things. But none are true sources of satisfaction and fulfillment. And trying to fill ourselves with these things will always leave us empty. Five and a half centuries later, Jesus would expound on that reality. In Matthew 6, when he told the crowds, therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life and what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet, your heavenly Father, he feeds them. Are you not more than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon, in all his glory, he was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, will he not much more clothe you? O you of little faith, therefore do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. Seek first the kingdom of God, his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Satisfaction with the stuff of life isn't to be found in pursuing the stuff itself, but as a byproduct to pursuing him And his righteousness has a lack of fulfillment crept into our lives. Because we've made some of the stuff of life our pursuit rather than the byproduct that results from seeking him first. No one is immune from a gradual shift in priorities. It's sobering that those who returned, those that were being addressed here by Haggai, were the ones most eager to see Israel restored, the ones unwilling to simply sit on the sidelines. They left all the comforts and familiarity of the only home they knew after all, They have been there for 70 years. The generation that went and was taken into captivity is nearly all gone. The whole nation did not return to rebuild. Only a remnant. Many stayed. We'll actually read in Esther. There's a significant contingent that stayed where they had position or opportunity or just were comfortable where they were in their captivity. But those who returned to Jerusalem, oh these were faithful ones right? They were eager to take up this work to see the glory of Israel returned. The presence of God to be made known among the nations. But even they lost steam and enthusiasm once opposition set in and delays arose. They turned their attention to other pressing matters. Not wholesale rebellion, not idolatry like got previous generations in trouble. Setting up homes for themselves. Getting everything back in working order. Cultivating vineyards and crops. Having all the working parts of society begin to function again. After a land that was decimated and left. For decades. They weren't abandoning God or deconstructing their faith. They drifted. They failed to remain steadfast. They lost sight of the prize. Their priorities shifted. And in, in the pursuit of other good things, they neglected the one thing that was the whole reason for their return rebuilding Yahweh's house. Reminding everyone that there is a God in Israel that cares for his people. Prioritizing and proclaiming his glory. Starting out strong doesn't guarantee finishing well. It didn't back then and it it doesn't now. It's hard to keep the main thing the main thing day after day year after year. We need each other. And I am so grateful that I have a community like this that treasures the gospel. That hungers for his work among us. May he grant us more grace to remain faithful, to be steadfast for years and decades and generations to come. There is no guarantee. If we are to hope to do so, we would be wise to consider our ways. Paneled houses versus pile of ruins was the striking contrast and clear picture God used at this point in time. And he can certainly speak something similar to different hearts that he spoke then to hearts today. But this isn't saying that every nice or comfortable house is sinful That's not the message Haggai is bringing. He was contrasting the state of the house with the state of what they were brought back to do and their neglect of their purpose of showing off God. Of making him central. Showing that he was the priority for his people. what he used to get their attention with. He may want to contrast or highlight something totally different for you and me. Like my willingness to study NFL stat lines while claiming I don't have time or energy to memorize God's word. I view memorization as specific passages hard. Tedious at times. Something that I haven't worked specifically into my schedule and planned to do it on a regular basis. And having our goals this year include... Meditate and memorize has been a helpful challenge for me to push me to not just stay where I am. To cause me to consider the state of my heart and why it is where it is. And he can bring other contrasting things to remind me, oh, this is okay and you're good with this, but this is somehow off limits for you. What's going on here? I don't know what your area may be. I trust the Holy Spirit to highlight whatever he desires to in each of our lives. Maybe it's scripture memorization or a particular discipline of study or commitment to generosity or some element of family worship or hospitality or prayer. I don't know what he might highlight for each of us, but I do think he has us here that we might consider our ways. The second thing we want to look at is that it's also important to consider God's ways. This one isn't listed as a direct imperative by Haggai, but he certainly inserts it. Here's a question I may regret asking. How unsettling is it to you that Haggai doesn't just point to Israel's dissatisfaction being rooted in their failure to keep a hunger for God's presence preeminent in their lives, but he also reveals that God is quite directly taking responsibility for the troubles and difficulties they are experiencing. I mean, it's one thing to say, Seek ye first. And all these things will be added to you. We see that as a positive. That's a good. It's God looking to bless us as we walk in his ways. Yet it seems like a, a very different thing. To say, you looked for much, and it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. That the heavens above you have withheld the dew and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought. On the land and the hills and the grain and the wine, the oil brings forth on man and beast and all their labors. Just to be clear. How do we interact with that? What reaction does that bring up in our hearts? Now, this isn't saying that every trouble we face is a direct link to a particular sin. I don't have time to go into all the examples whether it's the enemy itself bringing opposition and pain and suffering like we see in Job, Paul's thorn, whether it's the actions of other individuals seeking to bring us harm like we see in Joseph, or on and on, the different types of examples that we see ways trouble come to us. And at times even just God revealing that this wasn't the parent's fault or the child's fault, but this blindness was here from birth so that the glory of God could be revealed through healing. There's a bigger picture of troubles and trials that come into our lives than just what is presented here. But we're here today And we may need to wrestle a little bit. Because I don't think most of us like to associate God with the hard things that come our way. The ones that seem like bad things from our vantage point. Maybe out of the generosity of our hearts we want to shield God from the bad PR. even in our own thoughts. That comes with him being associated with things that we don't like or understand. But God doesn't shy away from claiming responsibility here for these hard things. And for some of us, the hard reality is that when we struggle to accept a God that we can't understand, we don't agree with how he's running his world, it's not God that needs to grow or change. And it isn't required that he explain himself better or appease us in any way. Scripture makes clear that he is good and loving and perfect in all his ways. And he's working all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose in Christ Jesus, in making us more like his Son. And there are times in each of our lives where we need to humble ourselves in order to expand our understanding or at least acceptance of what a good and loving God is willing to do to work in his people's lives. In this case, what discipline can look like As he purposes to bring his people back to himself. For as we read in Hebrews 12. At the moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. It's hard. It's not seen or received as good or enjoyable. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And we'll see in future weeks as we return to Haggai that the people here were trained by it. Ultimately at stake is whether people actually believe in this God who not only made heaven and earth but continues to be involved as he uses all that he has made to fulfill his purpose. Just as the Lord has brought the exile and reversed it, now he was acting, he was still acting sovereignly. He was acting in judgment and affecting the basic necessities of life. But he was also acting in mercy and sending a prophet to open their eyes and see the reality of the situation. He was not hating in what he was doing, but loving them enough to do what was necessary to get their attention, to turn their gaze back to him. Haggai wasn't torturing them by bringing up God's opposition to their complacency. He was waking them up. God wasn't done with them. He was faithfully acting the exact way he said he would, way back in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, by bringing even the heavens and earth to remind them of their commitment to him. And though they have not remained steadfast, he has not forsaken them. They are his people. He has delivered them again from captivity. And though our eyes might skim over it, Haggai has repeatedly been calling their attention to the nature and character of God. Eight times in these first 11 verses. We see God referred to as the Lord, in all caps, or the Lord of hosts. And when we see the Lord written in our Old Testament in all caps, like it is here these eight times, it's a signal from the translators that the name being used is the personal name of God, the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the name I am that Moses was given to relay to the Israelites when they would ask who sent him. What Haggai is reminding the people of by using this name, by bringing it up again and again and again, even in these hard statements, is that God isn't aloof or distant as he approaches his complacent people. He is reminding them who he is. He is the covenant-keeping God. He is the faithful one. The one that called and redeemed Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Lord of hosts that delivered his people after 400 years of captivity in Egypt. The God that has never turned his back on them, though they have been repeatedly unfaithful and adulterous in their relationship with him. And these reminders of who God is transforms this call to consider and to change their ways from simple moralism, do better, to a call built and flowing from the generous, gracious character of God Himself. Their actions are to be a response to who He is. Matt highlighted last week how Jesus brought the understanding of God as my Father, our Father. There's really a whole new concept during His ministry, a level of intimacy. And care that they did not know there was reverence. But, but this was a different way he was saying that God was relating to them. 500 years earlier, Haggai did not possess the fullness of that revelation. But he did know the faithful covenant-keeping God. Merciful and compassionate, slow to anger abounding in love, and he knew enough to remind a disheartened people that failed crops and lives filled with frustrations were not signs of his rejection, but a call to return to the only one that can truly satisfy. He knew that their myriad of unfulfilled longings were meant to act as beacons, pointing them back to the God who is able to abundantly surpass every longing. He had not abandoned or forsaken them, but was purposely intending their dissatisfaction with lesser things to be tools that drew them back to what mattered most relationship with Him, seeing and showing Him. As glorious in their midst. Which brings us to our final point. He calls us to join Him in building what truly lasts. Because what God is after here is not a building, but a relationship. People, He has rescued. He desires them to treasure him above everything else and hunger for his presence to be central in our lives. He is the God who raised up an army from dry bones. He could have spoken the temple back into being. He could have snapped his fingers and one stone would have stood upon another and, frankly, been better than anything else human hands could have constructed. He could have sent a legion of angels or an army of Persians to do the work. He is not limited in resources or manpower. He wasn't desperate for a structure, but he was wanting to develop devotion, build in his people a hunger for the glory of his name for their own good. He's jealous for his people to have a more fulfilling relationship with him. And it's the same for you and me. He's not wanting me to focus on memorization, to add another thing to the checklist, another duty to fulfill, but to help unlock more intimacy and joy in my own heart. One final encouragement towards application as we add up as we wrap up. The the t- temple that we hear him calling them to rebuild, it did get rebuilt, in case you haven't looked ahead. In case you weren't aware of what we were talking about last week, where Jesus was dedicated and where he was found uh, after he was left when he was twelve years old. But that physical temple is also no more was destroyed by the Romans in A.D. 70. And as we look back at God's call to rebuild the temple in Haggai's day, it may be helpful to be aware that we as believers in Jesus aren't looking for the physical structure to be rebuilt again. First, Jesus proclaimed during his ministry that Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Speaking of his coming crucifixion and resurrection. Because he was, as we looked at this morning in communion, the ultimate sacrificial lamb, slaughtered to bring us peace with God. He rose again on the third day and no more atonement for sin is required. No place is needed any longer for these lesser sacrifices. They were always only meant to be placeholders and shadows of Christ's work. The entire sacrificial system finds its fulfillment once and for all in Christ. Secondly, the New Testament identifies not a building as the current equivalent of the Old Testament temple, the dwelling place of God, but a people, the church. We are the temple where he dwells. Which means that putting top priority on him and his kingdom is not just an individual pursuit. There very likely are ways he will continue to call you to respond personally But the building he is calling you to invest in is not this structure that's keeping us dry or warm this morning. It's the living stones that are gathered all around you. We are being built together into a dwelling place for God by his spirit. The call for us today is not a way from our paneled houses to go fetch some wood in the mountains. But to gather with and prioritize this living house and his presence among us. Let's use our homes and invite others into them like we're doing this evening. Treasure the gatherings of his people on Sundays and in care groups. Let us serve one another, pray with and for one another, care for one another, remind each other of gospel truths, sing,, sing. sing Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. Forgive one another. Memorize and study scripture with one another. Love one another. Rejoice and grieve with one another. Build each other up in Christ Jesus. It looks a little different than it did in Haggai's day, but there is still building that needs to be done. May we consider our ways and come together to build what lasts. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you are willing to arrest our hearts, to direct our gaze towards you. Lord, would you give us grace to see you more clearly, to treasure you above all else, Serve and build one with one another. Lord, thank you that you have made us your dwelling place. That we enjoy something these Israelites did not know. Lord, would you help us to grow? Would you help us Motivated by your goodness and grace. Help us to see you as first. Bring you glory. In your name we pray. Amen.